0: this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Associations podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care.
1: Hello, my name is Matthew Janko. I'm a cardiothoracic surgery fellow at University Hospitals, uh, Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. I'm joined by Dr. Joseph Sabic, professor and chairman of surgery and one of the world's leading experts on coronary bypass surgery. Today, we're going to be discussing uh, total arterial revascularization.
0: Uh, Hi, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for the nice introduction.
1: All right, so let's begin with a case presentation. A 50-year-old woman presents to the clinic with chest pain during light exercise and intermittently at rest. She has a history of hyperlipidemia, obesity, smoking, and a family history of coronary artery disease. Her uh, echocardiogram is normal, but the stress test is positive. Her coronary angiogram reveals severely obstructing lesions in the left anterior descending, diagonal, circumflex, and posterior descending arteries with a high syntax score. Other causes of her symptoms have been ruled out.
0: How do you approach this patient? Well, great, Matt. Just so I can summarize, so we have a woman. She has multiple risk factors for coronary artery disease and has had a heart catheterization, which demonstrated multi-vessel disease. I also understand she had a positive stress test. So, you know, these are the type of patients that we see pretty much every day, you know, as, as coronary surgeons. And you're always kind of debating, you know, should the patient have medical therapy? Should they have percutaneous intervention? Or should they have coronary artery bypass surgery? You know, the data is old. And it's, always, it's a problem that we all face as heart surgeons because the data is old, but I have to say, being in practice for now almost three decades, I've learned how valuable coronary surgery is. So I think she's an excellent candidate. You know, we know from syntax that when patients have multi-vessel disease, whether they're treated with coronary intervention or surgery, that patients who have surgery tend to live longer and they have fewer complications and particularly late myocardial infarctions. And we know from very early studies that were done in the 70s and 80s, such things as the the VA, the CAS study, and the European Cooperative Study, that when patients have multi-vessel disease, they do better with surgery than medicines. Now having said that, medicines have improved over time, and you're probably familiar with the, the ischemia trial, which at least suggests that some patients with chronic, you know, stable angina can be treated as well medically. You know, I have to admit, my bias is that I think this patient would be treated surgically. Again, I think it's better than percutaneous um, intervention. So I think, again, she'd be uh, an appropriate candidate uh, for surgery, and we'd be looking at doing bypass grafts or LED diagonal and CERC and and PDA, I believe you said. That's right. Thank you. So uh, we know that an important predictor of effectiveness of
1: coronary artery bypass is the patency of the graft itself. So, what do you
0: think are some of the factors that affect coronary graft patency? So that's again a, a great point, and I think it's just kind of logical. You know, if you're going to go do an operation that consists of you constructing bypass grafts, the effectiveness of that operation is going to depend on whether your bypass grafts stay open, right? And actually, this is something that I became really interested in early in my in my career, and still am very very interested in. And I, had, I was very fortunate to be in an environment where we had a lot of data. Now, it was observational data on grafts, but we learned a lot. You know, one of the things, obviously, that, again, I think is probably just logical is, is time. You know, the longer a graft is in place, the more likely it is to fail. The caveat, though, is that's not really true for arterial grafts. That's really true for vein grafts. And the reason being is that vein grafts develop atherosclerosis. And what happens is, as you can think about it, we take a vein which is in a low-pressure environment, and now we harvest it from the leg, and then we put it in a high-pressure environment. Both harvesting it as well as being in the high-pressure environment can lead to intimal injury. And this intimal injury then leads to platelet adherence. The platelets release factors, which can cause smooth muscle migration into the intima, which is the precursor for atherosclerosis. And so this is a process that happens over time. And by 5 years you're really starting to see the development of atherosclerosis in vein grafts. And by 10 years, at least half of that vein grafts have closed due to atherosclerosis, and the other 50% have atherosclerosis in them. That's very different than arterial grafts, you know, particularly the internal thoracic artery. And I think it's probably true for such things as the radial and gastroepiploic as well. They don't tend to develop atherosclerosis, and a very low percentage of these grafts have atherosclerosis in them at the time of harvesting, well less than 5%. And so if an arterial graft stays or is open, it's likely to stay open for a very long time. And that's Mm -hmm. some of the things that we learned. If an arterial graft was open at 5 years, at 10 years, 15 years, it's going to stay open. Now what are the factors that influence whether an arteriograph stays open? And that's really all about competitive flow. And what I mean by that is that's the flow that is in the the coronary artery itself. And so if an artery has a 50% obstruction versus a 90% obstruction, we know there's gonna be a lot more competitive flow in the artery that has a 50% versus an artery that has a 90%. And one of the things that, that I like to think about is that arterial grafts are smart and they can respond to their physiologic need, and so if you put an arterial graft to an artery that's not significantly blocked, there's a chance that that ar- that artery graft could constrict and close over time, and that failure rate is relatively small and is not as great as we think, but that's the factor that influences arterial grafts, and so I think there's even some interest now in in using FFR and other means to evaluate coronary arteries but honestly as surgeons you know we don't always have that information at our fingertips you know we might somebody's going to get a diagnostic catheterization the cardiologist sees by angiography they've got high grade disease in all three vessels they're not necessarily going to do FFR the question always then becomes you referred somebody who has moderate disease in a vessel, what do you do with that? But we can save that for another talk someday. Uh, but either way, I think that arterial grafts give us the best chance of giving patients good long-term results. And so again, when you're, when you're dealing with patients with critical disease and multi-vessels, the arterial grafts are most likely to stay open. You know, other factors that influence pati- uh, you know graft patency, the coronary grafted Um, For instance, grafts constructed to the LAD tend to have better patency than those constructed to the main right coronary artery. Probably that's due to things like runoff LAD grafts and often LADs are collateralizing other blood vessels in the heart. You know, the right coronary is often diseased and calcified, so probably not a great choice. And then we look at things like diagonals, circumflexes, posterior descending arteries. They kind of have intermediate patency. So it's usually, as you know, my preference, I'd rather graft a PDA than a main right when the right coronary is obstructed, but I can. And then there are certain patient factors. We know that uh, women have worse patency, uh, uh, grafts constructed in women have worse patency than grafts constructed in men. Maybe that has to do with the size of the coronary arteries in women versus men, not exactly sure. We know that younger patients tend to have um, worse graft patency, and my assumption's always been that when you're operating on someone who's younger, they've got more aggressive atherosclerosis. Maybe they're more likely to have genetic predisposition to, you know, hyperlipidemia and, and other risk factors.
1: Thank you so much. That was uh, that was great. So. Um, an insight to internal memory artery graft is likely to stay open for a very long time if it stays open initially. And uh, there are some intrinsic uh, factors that are associated with the IMA, including uh, a non-fenestrated internal elastic lamina that decreases cell migration and intimal hyperplasia after coronary bypass, the thin media layer of the internal memory artery that eludes vasodilators like nitrous oxide and prostacycline, and also postoperatively, and, and in the hospital we'll see, that the IMA will dilate with melrenone and doesn't necessarily constrict with other inotropes and pressors like levophed and norepinephrine. And the IMA can positively remodel over time. And veins uh, are, are, like you said, not as smart as uh, arteries. Uh, So in terms of what we can do to improve the patency of our grafts, like, for example, with medications postoperatively operatively um, and targets of our bypasses, what are some of your considerations that you have going into a surgery and after?
0: Yeah, so again, I think that's a, that's a great question. So again, when we're choosing our arteriographs, I think it's important that we put them to you know, significantly stenotic arteries. You know, although there are situations where you, you may still put it to an artery that's 60 or 70% obstructed, And again, the patency of that is still very good, but it's not as good as when we can preferentially put it to an artery that's 90% obstructed. I think when you're doing things like sequential and composite grafts, you really need to take into consideration the obstruction of the arteries. Because if, let's say you're doing a sequential graft and your first uh, bypass, your side to side, is to a moderately stenosed artery, and then your distal is to a very uh, highly stenotic artery, you could get a coronary coronary bypass and the proximal part of your graft could close over time. So I think there are certain kind of things you want to think about in terms of when you're choosing your arterial grafts. Um, the other thing people think about, and, and I think this has been shown very well, particularly with the gastropoploic, is the size of your bypass graft compared to your artery. For instance, if you have a 50% stenosis in a right coronary artery, that's six millimeters, you're still gonna have a three millimeter residual lumen, which is probably gonna be larger than the maximal diameter of your gastropoploic. So the gastroploic might not work in that situation. So I think that again, looking at your residual lumen and comparing that to the size of your artery graft is probably important as well in determining whether that graft is going to stay open. In terms of vein grafts, I think you know veins today are better than they were before. We know that aspirin and antiplatelet agents are, are very important, and that gets back to that early mechanism. when you have that intimal injury, if you prevent the platelets from adhering, you don't start the smooth muscle migration, you don't develop the intimal hyperplasia, you don't develop um, atherosclerosis. So again, it's important to get patients on antiplatelets, you know, particularly aspirin. I know there's some question over uh, other antiplatelet agents because you know, studies such as the cascade, although seem to show at least a trend to benefit, it might not have been powered enough to show the benefit of other agents. But I, I personally do like a, a dual antiplatelet therapy in patients who I do use vein grafts in. And then obviously the importance of cholesterol um, medications to keep it down. You know, the lower the better. You know, I think it was the cabbage uh, patch trial that showed under 100, and probably under 70 is even better from what we know today.
1: Great, thank you. So let's circle back to our patient. Um, we've decided to perform total arterial coronary revascularization in our 50 year old female patient who presented with angina, a positive stress test, and coronary arterial disease on angiography. What are some of the technical considerations for the operation? You mentioned um, a technique of doing sequential grafting and comparing the uh, the difference between the diameter of our graft to our target coronary and how to think about uh, where to place
0: and what to sequence and what not to
1: sequence. Um, could you sure uh, expand on
0: that? Yeah, right? you know, I think there's a lot of, of, of art in, in the technique of coronary surgery, particularly when you're doing all arterial grafting. You know, as you know, we can use arterial grafts, particularly the mammary and the gastroepiploic you know, either in situ or as, in, as free grafts. When you use them in situ, you're using a lot of graft because you gotta travel from the chest wall, you know, to the heart. And so there are opportunities to improve the efficiency or utilization of your graft by doing things such as sequential grafting, um, doing things such as uh, free grafts, uh, composite grafts. And to me, that's where a lot of the fun of coronary surgery comes in, because you, you can sit around and figure out, like I'll, I'll talk to you about a case we did the other night. It was a gentleman, at a 95% left main, and a very tight LED diagonal, two tight cirques, and a very tight uh, you know PDA. Well, we had multiple options on how you could do it. And by the way, he had both of his legs stripped uh, due to previous uh, varicosities and had chronic venous stasis disease of his, his lower legs. And so this was a guy that, you know, we, we used two mammaries and a radial, and we did five bypass grafts. And, you know, how we constructed it was, a, you know, a, a lot of fun. We decided to use the, the REMA as an inside to graft to his posterior descending artery, and we used the LEMA to do the diagonal and LED, and the radial, which was a very nice uh, vessel, to do the two circumflexes. But we also talked about we could use the LEMA and do the two circumflexes, take the right as a free graft and do the diagonal and LED, and then use the radial to the PDA, or we could have done the lima to the diagonal and LED, the Rema as a composite graft off of the lima to do the two circumflexes and the radial to the, the PDA. But we kind of looked at our conduit and, and how things were, and we decided to do it the way we did because we were very fortunate. He had a really nice long sternum, and we were able to get the REMA to the PDA without uh, a- any problem. So to me, this is the fun of arterial surgery, and it was the conversation that uh, I had with our chief as, as to how we were going to do this. And, and she asked, well, what are you going to do? I said, well, these are our options, and mm-hmm. we're going to figure it out when we get there by looking at the conduit, looking at the arteries, and, and, and doing the best thing we can for him.
1: So uh, in terms of thinking about using the uh, bilateral internal mammaries as either in situ or as a free graft, One of the benefits of using the IMA as a free graft is maybe we don't need to necessarily harvest such a a length of the artery, and that may perhaps uh, decrease the risk of having a sternal complication if we're devascularizing the chest wall less and leaving more of the uh, IMA behind. Uh, Are there any particular patients that you think about, like heavy smokers, obese patients, COPD, diabetic patients who may be at higher risk where you consider Using the IMA in one configuration or another.
0: So I think you bring up a great point, and that's the risk associated with bilateral internal thoracic artery grafting. Now, now I have to say I have, uh, for many years, have been harvesting my mammarys skeletonized, and I and I'll tell you that's a game changer. You know, I know that most of us are taught how to do pedicled grafts, um, but I think w- once you learn and uh, repeatedly do skeletonized mammaries, it's hard to go back. I think the one thing is that the sternum looks different when you're done. You know, it just bleeds more. And I think the reason is is that when these branches come off the mammary, there's a short length that's straight, and then it, it, it kind of Ys. And that's the blood supply to the sternum. Often when you're taking it as a pedicle, you're taking it at the Y. But when you skeletonize it, you're taking it at the, the length before the Y, so you're, you're still getting blood flow. You know, I was always very nervous about doing bilateral mammaries in diabetics, but I have to tell you I do it a lot more and and, and often routinely now. I think the one group that gives me pause are obese diabetic women, you know, because that group has been demonstrated to have a higher sternal wound infection rate. And I I do believe that is, is real. And I think there's also excellent data now showing that the benefit of an IMA in radial I, I like to use two mammaries and a radial quite often, but you know, in, in that group of patients, I might just use an IMA and a radial and, and not use both mammaries because of the risk of, of sternal wound infection. And then I also think you're kind of looking at your, your, um, your coronaries and, and how you're gonna do this construction. And does it doesn't make sense into what conduit you use. I, I do look at that and think about that as well. But things such as, um, you know, I haven't had, uh, you know, COPD has it hasn't uh, influenced uh, and other things. But again, it's that uh, diabetic, obese women that I think you really need to take a little bit of a pause in.
1: Great, thank you. Yeah, In terms of your setup and how you're um, approaching these patients at the time of the operation and looking at the actual physical distances globally around the heart, uh, if you could just kind of describe to, to me and the folks listening, um, what you mean by a sequential graft and what you sure. mean by your different uh, anastomosis that you're designing whether they be a, a y or a parallel or, or how you think about that and also you know in addition to your sequential options uh, how you go to the next level and, and
0: do a composite graft. Sure I think you know when you think about the classic sequential graft usually people mean that the first bypass or the first anastomosis is kind of in a, in a diamond shape. And the, and the uh, second one is kind of an end to side that's parallel. I have to admit, I, I've kind of moved away from that concept. And I think the, the reason for that is that often the IMA might be a little bit small, and it could be even smaller in diameter than the coronary you're bypassing. Doing that diamond anastomosis in that situation can be technically harder. And you also have the tendency to flatten the graft just because you want to make your arteriotomy probably about one and a half times uh, the diameter of the coronary, which can really flatten your bypass graft. But if you do a parallel anastomosis in that situation, you can make your anastomosis as long as you want and you're not going to flatten the graft. And then you're actually doing the diamond anastomosis at the last anastomosis. Because the way the graph will 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 lie, and I know that surprised a lot of people. But I got to tell you, it's a it's a very easy technique to to learn, and I think one of the easiest sequential graphs to do is taking the you know insight to IMA, and bypassing a diagonal and LAD, and it's really nice when that diagonal is parallel to the LAD because then you can do a parallel anastomosis of your IMA, and then bring. Um, the end of your IMA over to the LAD, and you can do it in a diamond, depending on how much length you have, or you can do it parallel. Um, so you have lots of options to learn in that way. So again, I think when I'm, I'm and it doesn't mean that I don't do diamond anastomosis, because I do, but I, I really wanna make sure that it's a nice large IMA, and I'm not worried about compromising it during the anastomosis. But I think for someone learning, the sequential parallel is easier and I think it's something that people can develop a comfort level with very quickly. Composite grafts obviously allow you, again, as you were talking about, you don't have to take probably as much mammary, and um, it's when you're putting a mammary or a radial on an in situ graft, such as a left internal mammary. I like to do those anastomoses what I call, in the pericardium, and so that all the anastomoses are sitting inside, and so I'm not worried so much about kinking outside the pericardium. And you can do that in a variety of ways. You can do it in a T fashion, which is like a diamond anastomosis. You can do it in a Y, and you can even do it parallel, depending on how your graphs lie and how much length you have. So um, so your composite graft has an inflow that's
1: actually another artery that you've already bypassed. Correct. So in other words, an example would be if you've already have your um, sequentially uh, oriented Lima to LAD that has a a sequential uh, parallel, ideally, graphed to a a parallel diagonal uh, target, you could then kind of jump off of that Lima uh, to another target
0: using a different uh, um, graft. Exactly. You could do you know the circumflex situation. The one thing I don't do with a composite graft, unless I'm really in trouble and have very limited conduit, is I, I, I don't like to do both the left and right systems off of one inflow. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm doing a composite graph, let us just say I you know do an LED diagonal and maybe two circs with the the REMA and then I'll do a separate graph to the right. I have though when you're you know really in trouble and you just don't have conduit you know, brought everything off a of memory, But it makes me a little bit nervous. Is that enough flow for the entire heart? You know, something to think about.
1: So from your prior research, uh, is there any consideration to a difference in patency over time when we use these sequential bypasses uh, and use composite bypasses compared to, let's say, a, a single bypass target or contrasting that against like just using a vein bypass? Like how do those different sequential components and individual uh, lengths between the targets um, influence the patency of the graft over time and then contrasting
0: those all arterial targets
1: against just using a vein from the get-go.
0: Yeah, so that's a great question. So, you know, I think we often hear, well, we really shouldn't use the mammary as a sequential graft, to the diagonal and LED, you know, when you can, because you don't want to compromise your IME to, uh, IMA to LED because we know that is very important for survival. And so that was actually something we looked at and uh, you know, obviously the gold standard was the patency of the Lima to LED. And what we found was there was really no difference in the patency when you use the IMA as a sequential graft. And again, this was observational data. So these are people who came back for catheterization due to symptoms. So they would be more likely to have problems, but we didn't find, you know, any increase in graft closure and in similar patency. So sequential grafting, again, I think is, as long as it's done correctly with some of the techniques that we talked about earlier, can give you just as good patency as a, a single graft. When we looked at our composite grafts though, the patency was not as good as the gold standard. And um, it was a, a significantly worse, but it wasn't as bad as vein grafts. And it's the thing that I, 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 I like to remind myself and like to talk to all of you about, that even though the patency might be a little bit lower, um, it's still much better, you know, over the long run. I don't know exactly why that is. Could it have been our early experience with it? Or could we have been, you know, doing some of the things we talked about, maybe bypassing some moderately stenosed arteries in those, you know, situations? But but either way, the patency is still excellent, but not quite as good as an in-situ mammary graft. I think... Uh you know, we
1: started this conversation by comparing some of our either medical, endovascular, or surgical techniques to revascularize young patients who we expect to live for multiple decades. And uh, I think you've really kind of shown us through your prior work and here today in this conversation that using a total arterial bypass is uh, the way to go when we're thinking about
0: patients who are going to be living longer than 10 years especially. Okay. Well, thank so you. want to thank you so much.